Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Track Fellow Series, where I go through the events of House of X and Powers of Ten and the new Jonathan Hickman written era of X-Men starting in 2019. Today, on Cracking Krakoa number 12, the unspoken revisionist history of Hickman's X-Men, I'm going to be looking specifically at the entire history of X-Men comics, how it maps to the journal entries that Myra McTaggart writes in the pages of Powers of Ten number 6, the final issue released in the House of X, Powers of Ten, 12-issue event. I'm going to be mapping X-Men continuity throughout Marvel's history all to the journal entries we get from Myra. It's potentially a fool's errand. It's potentially an exercise in, in losing my sanity, but that's what I'm going to try to do is figure out, okay, we've got this really cool new status quo shift. We've got this really cool new situation that the X-Men are in that's going to lead to all sorts of interesting stories. Obviously, I'm a big fan of House of X and Powers of Ten, but it raises some really big questions, such as what in X-Men history, all the comics that came before, starting in you know the X-Men by Stanley and Jack Kirby in 1963, what actually happened? When did it happen? How did it happen? Etc. I'm going to attempt to play a little mix and match with the details we have so far to see if we can potentially come to some answers. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you like the content I'm doing here on Comic Book Herald YouTube channel or on the podcast Best Comics Ever, please consider liking and subscribing to the YouTube channel or, of course, subscribing to the pod over on Best Comics Ever. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of Comic Book Herald. You can find all of my writing over on comicbookherald.com alongside reading orders for the entirety of X-Men comics and the Marvel Universe and really anything you can think of. If you're looking for something to help you enjoy and read more comics, check out comicbookherald.com. There's a good chance we have something interesting for you over there. All right, so to tell you a little bit more, again, too, if you haven't read House of X and Powers of Ten and you're worried about spoilers... Bail. Bail now. Get out of here. Go read the issues. Come on back when you're done, and then it'll make sense to you. If you don't care or you've already read them, this is for you. So let's talk about Myra's journals, okay? In the pages, again, here we have three journal pages with various entries. And the interesting thing about these journal pages are twofold. One, they are spread out quite a bit, right? So we get entry 5 into entry 12 into entry 14, right? We're not getting these things in order. The other interesting thing, as you can see here is a two journal entries specifically relating to Charles Xavier are redacted. Myra has has written something here that she has redacted from her own journal lest that information come out. So those are probably the two most interesting journal entries to get into, I think, because I'm going to explore a little bit what what those events probably are based on what we know about comic book continuity and history and um, why Myra might have redacted them, right? So without further ado, let's get into the journal entries one by one. And before I do that, I do want to address, there was an Adventures in Poor Taste interview with Jonathan Hickman very recently that everyone should read heading into Dawn of X and X-Men number one coming out soon. Um, but Hickman, one of the questions he was asked was about the timeline of X-Men comics, right? So we've got this situation where, as the as the questionnaire here, Murphy Lakes asks, you've smashed Genosha, House of M, Messiah Complex, Utopia Period, Schism, all of Wolverine and the X-Men, yada, yada, yada into a three-year period for Myra X, right? So there's like, there's this situation in the sliding timeline of Marvel continuity where it seems like too much is happening, you know? It seems like too many Marvel events of the 2000s are smashed into a short period of time. And Hickman's answer is effectively, it doesn't work 
and it's also just a big Marvel problem, which I think is true. So there's like a big picture Marvel timeline problem, I think, if you try to map Marvel's sliding continuity timeline exactly, precisely, date by date, you're inevitably going to run into lots of problems. And that's something that I've taken to heart here in mapping these events. I think it's more interesting to me to figure out where stories might take place and in 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 context of one another and effectively what that might mean for storytelling going forward as opposed to literal, this happened on August 12th. 2001 type uh you know dating of things which again in marvel comics continuity it is just kind of impossible hickman later in the answer says maybe don't stare at the sun and i tend to agree right it's a good way to hurt yourself so given that background let's get into the very first entry and i am literally going to go through all of the entries if that sounds tedious (laughs) i hope it's not i hope there's some additive uh you know information i can provide here and also you know if you have theories of your own about what these timelines and references might be let me know in the comments i want to hear from you guys what you think myra's referring to especially the redacted portions so entry number five it's myra talking about bringing professor x onto her level she's bringing him into the fold we've seen this in the pages of house of x number two for example when she opens her mind to charles and says you know hey this is what's going on this i've lived these lives will you get on my level and move forward for you know the sake of mutant kind to this big krakoa house of x plan that we've seen unfold in the event it's pretty straightforward although the biggest reveal here is that myra is still concealing details or perspectives from professor x right It's called the House of X, and he's the public face of the new status quo, you know, as we know it. But the plotting stems from Myra's knowledge and plans. We can pretty easily slot in Professor X's remaining idealism, I think, into the Silver Age of X-Men, right? This would be the early stages of X-Men when he's forming the original five X-Men crew, Angel, Beast, uh, Iceman, Jean Grey, and Cyclops. And I think, you know, this is our classic Stanley, Jack Kirby Silver Age X-Men period. Pretty straightforward. Less straightforward, of course, redacted entry number 12. Our first all-black redaction raises the most interesting questions of Myra's journal to me, which is, how does known X-Men continuity map to Hickman's vision for the franchise moving into 2020? Nothing in X-Men history has been explicitly removed from the canon. But to date, the elements that we can absolutely confirm are limited and and as far ranging as, let's say, like Grant Morrison's time writing new X-Men to something as recent and, you know, semi-obscure as the X-Men Black Emma Frost one-shot written by Leah Williams, right? That that was specifically confirmed as having happened in, in the sequence where Xavier and Professor X confront Emma Frost. So given the openness, I think we can pretty safely draw from a premise of it all happened, right? That's where I'm going to start. Everything that we know in X-Men history that is canon remains canon. Okay, how do we fit it in until proven otherwise? For my money then, given the context clues of what's around this redaction, this section most likely refers to the events of Deadly Genesis, the 2005 revisionist history of X-Men by Ed Brubaker and Travis Hairsign. In Deadly Genesis, it's revealed that the all-new, all-different X-Men from 1975's Giant Size X-Men number one, this would be the team here of Colossus, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Storm, Banshee, Sunfire, Proudstar, and Cyclops, were the first, were not the first, excuse me, mutant team Professor X to 
Professor X asked to rescue the original X-Men from Krakoa. So in Giant Size X-Men number one, there's a big story here by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum where this new team is assembled and they are asked to go to Krakoa to rescue the original X-Men who are trapped there. Deadly Genesis reveals that there was actually a mutant crew being trained by Myra McTaggart before this point in time, and she agreed, after much consternation and debate, to let them take on Krakoa. Long story short, it goes very, very badly, resulting in the deaths of this class of mutants, save for two. So you have here, again, if we're going to look at instances of Charles and and Myra's history together, Deadly Genesis is very much a, a the type of thing that should be explored and explained with now the further knowledge of this duo's plotting together uh, for, for much bigger things. There are a couple fascinating elements from this story put through the lens of House of X that I find. First off, all original efforts to establish contact with this enraged Krakoa, the island that walks like a man, are completely turned on their head, given what we know about Myron Professor X's plans for the sentient island. You know, like, it seemed like this weird thing. Why are the original X-Men even out there? Why does Professor X keep sending teams to Krakoa? This makes a lot more sense in retrospect given the potential plans for what Krakoa has become. Second, one of the original crew is none other than Gabriel Summers, a.k.a. the third Summers brother, or maybe the fourth if you're big uh, Adam X the Extreme guys. But Gabriel Summers is a confirmed Summers brother, and we know from everything from Sinister Secrets teasing more Summers siblings to the covered X-Men number one looking like a Summers family reunion that Gabriel has a role to play in Hickman's X-Men. He's also... If you remember from the Omega level data chart, Gabriel Summers, a.k.a. Vulcan, is also included on this list as one of the Omega mutants that uh, that Professor X and company have sworn to protect sort of above all else. Importantly, a major reveal of Deadly Genesis is also that Professor X unilaterally decides to mind wipe Cyclops without Myra's consent. At the time, this felt of a piece with the Professor X is a jerk cycle of stories that were coming our way. But with the Myra retcon, this decision takes on a pretty new meaning. I wonder if this particular moment, Charles acting outside Myra's influence, is the biggest reason for the redacted text. Look at her reaction here when he tells her, he, I've decided that's something that he doesn't need to know, referring to Cyclops here and essentially what has happened. Myra, you've decided? Especially given her instant remorse in the following section, could Myra have decided herself here that she can't have Charlie acting out like this again? I tend to think yes. Long story short, I'd be shocked if Deadly Genesis didn't fit the narrative with some new twists and turns. I think this is almost certainly our entry number 12. Entry 14 regarding Charles Xavier. This feels very much like an early tease for Onslaught. The moment when Professor X's psyche fractures from the strain of wiping Magneto after the events of the 90s event Fatal Attractions. While Myra may be sensing a move towards this eventuality, we can't actually be in Onslaught territory yet at the time of this entry. That said, Onslaught is far from the first time Professor X's dark side manifested outwardly. You know, we have seen this happen time and time again with Professor X, and I think it's important here, when Myra, you know, when we get the reveal in Powers of X, of Powers of 10, of the extended... Professor X learning Myra's plan for the first time. You know, the first time we see it in House of X number two, it's kind of just this like, oh, oh my, revelation. When we see it in Powers of 10 number six, it breaks him. <laughs> he is screaming in agony with all of what Myra has just unleashed on him. It is a more brutal assault on the mind. Hence, Myra's concern that she might fracture 
his psyche with this knowledge and with this plan. So while Myra may be sensing a move towards this eventuality, uh, it you know as early as Uncanny X Men number one hundred four to one hundred eight, oddly enough, during the first stage of the Phoenix Saga, we see stressful Lelander dreams cause a break in Xavier. So we know Onslaught is a big event when Professor X and sort of the he again like a, you know with a combo of Magneto unleashes his dark side on the Marvel Universe in terrifying ways. We've seen it much earlier in Uncanny X-Men 104 to 108. We see stressful Lelander dreams cause Professor X's mind to unleash psychic attacks, the original five X-Men on the all-new squad before revealing his Damon self, who is all evil Charlie with the good cape. That's right, dark Professor X comes into the fray as early as like Uncanny X-Men number 106, I think specifically. Um, the biggest problem with this specific reference is that it occurs during the very first tease of Mutant X, a.k.a. Proteus, in Myra's Muir Isle research facility. So while it isn't until the next entry on the list that we even get the suggestion of bringing Proteus into the world, given this, I'd argue Entry 14 is more suggestive of Myra anticipating these moments in X-Men history rather than reference to a specific event that has actually occurred. Entry number 17. Here we get Charles and Myra plotting for the creation of a mutant with the ability to tweak primal matter or give reality as we know it a push. This is Proteus. Myra finds potential matches for either herself or Charles to produce such a mutant, and as we know, she ultimately does so with Joseph McTaggart, giving birth to Kevin McTaggart, the boy who would be Proteus. This is something I have talked about previously when I did the uh, deep dive on the secret history of Myra McTaggart, but I found it very curious. You know, I think it raises some particularly challenging questions. Uh, for Myra, if you're going to say she's lived these lives all these number of times, my, my sort of questioning was, why why is she marrying Joseph McTaggart then, who is absolutely the worst in parenting Proteus, you know, in the way that she does, right? Like, when Proteus is revealed early in Uncanny X-Men, Myra is is like hunting him down, you know, so Proteus takes on the X-Men and he's a reality warping mutant who we now know to be essential to the five and resurrection protocols. Um, but at the time, I was like, well, why? Why would Myra do this unless there was a bigger plan here? And what we know now from this entry is the sense that this entry gives some explanation. It was a calculated decision uh, that Proteus was almost more of a means to an end the five and resurrection protocols than an honest goodness, you know, desire to fall in love and have children or anything like that. Right. So strangely, I prefer this calculated rationale for Proteus. The entire affair also serves as a reminder that through all Myra's experience, uh, she is not omnipotent and some of House of X is entirely new to her. So Joseph McTaggart and Proteus may well be one of those things. I don't see them referenced in other Myra lifelines. This might be the very first time she does this. Um, so I like this scene when Myra, so they're hunting Proteus for the first time in this early uncanny X-Men sequence. And Myra is going to snipe and kill Kevin McTaggart, her son, Proteus. And as she says here, I love you, boy, but I love the X-Men too. I'm not let you harm them. And that's me doing my nineties X-Men Myra McTaggart, which I cannot get enough of. And apologies to everyone <laughs> for subjecting you to that. But she's, she, this is so fascinating in the context of what we now know about Myra and her goals. You know, this, I love the X-Men too. I will not let you harm them. She would take out her own flesh and blood son here in Life 10. And I have to think, potentially thinking like, well, this was a failed experiment. We can do it again. I have the genetic expertise to make someone new. We've found multiple matches. And then we've even seen, I love this find. In classic X-Men, I think it's number 36, where Myra is considering the second time around. 
here with the body of Proteus thinking, I'll just clone you again. I'll make another one. This whole issue, to me, it plays so differently knowing what we know now about Myra. Entry 22 on the list, bringing in Magneto. Now, presumably bringing Magneto into the fray uh, aligns around the time of Uncanny X-Men number 200 when Magneto takes on some responsibility with the X-Men and New Mutants. So this is this is a big trial of Magneto issue, pretty famous in X-Men history, and essentially what happens is Professor X is wounded to the degree that he needs to go off into space with the Shi'ar to be healed, and he asks sort of with his dying breath, now with the friendship of Professor X and Magneto, the, pre- the past friendship very firmly established in X-Men continuity, um, he asks Magneto, like, hey, watch over the X-Men and eventually the New Mutants for me. I love the implication here that Myra implants the idea of strongholds in Magneto's mind around this time, setting the stage for Genosha, Asteroid M, and frankly, even his fondness for Utopia. Now, there is the potential, there's a potential that this actually happens way earlier than what we see. Um, you know, kind of the way the way it looks, I guess, this one's tricky because we've seen in House of X and Powers of Ten, we've seen Professor X and Myra go to you know, one of Magneto's strongholds and recruit him to the cause. Is that the moment when he's recruited or is it when a Professor X, you know, finally brings him into the fold to truly join the X-Men uh, and New Mutants around Uncanny X-Men number 200? Because to me, if it's earlier than that time joining, then then the whole like Magneto being a supervillain and fighting with the X-Men thing is is kind of confusing. But this one's big. I think it it changes the timeline and it changes sort of my mapping uh, a bit. I like putting it at around X-Men, un- Uncanny X-Men number 200, but I'm pretty open to interpretations that suggest otherwise, given the rest of the context we have. Entry number 29, and let's let's look at Mags here on the YouTube vid. You know, he joins the X-Men, right? Professor X is in space for a really long time, like a really, really long time. So you got Magneto in charge of, of the kids, <laughs> of the new mutants for a good chunk of the 80s, which I think is often forgotten. You know, we think of Magneto as the villain for so long. Entry 29, Apocalypse enters the picture after slowly building his presence in the pages of X-Factor. Uh, we've seen him battling the team most visibly in X-Factor number 24. I mean, I think unless unless Myra's language of Apocalypse making himself known to the world is in reference to something different, you know, something we haven't seen, I think it has to be. His first appearances, the time he makes himself known with his four horsemen, including Angel, Archangel now, the Horseman of Death, to the Uncanny X-Men. It's Again, this is another one where it's like Apocalypse could have could have done something earlier than this point in time, but otherwise it's very easy to pin down. You know, this is going to be around the time of X-Factor number 24, which I think was published in 88 or something like that. Um, so that brings us to... Entry 35, the second and final redacted entry on the list. It's the trickiest theory to pin down for me. If I'm right about previous and following entries, the events mentioned here should fall between Fall of the Mutants, which is a late 80s X-Men event, and X-Men number one, which was released in 1991. The most obvious moment within the timeline, within that timeline, is Inferno, a moment in X-Men history that has already been heavily teased in Powers of Tens number four in the Sinister Secrets. Uh, less obvious, though, is what role 
Myra could have played here. So we, you know, we've seen Sinister mention Inferno. It's one of his secrets. There's some relevance here, potentially, unless it's all just a ruse. We've also seen Magneto says the word Inferno. It's bolded. And knowing that Sinister teased this, you know, it's a moment. We don't know what it means yet, but we know it has some relevance. I Less obvious, again, is what does this have to do with Professor X? Like, Professor X is not a major player in the pages of Inferno. Um Myra is not a major player in the pages of Inferno. Now, it could be secret history type stuff, right? But why Why would, for example, Myra's genetics expertise go hand-in-hand hand with Sinister's games with Madeline Pryor? Like, what is she trying to achieve there, potentially? So, Inferno could play a role. I think it's probably the most obvious selection, given the timeline. But I can't quite do put the math together on the relevance for the story, despite knowing Inferno's super relevant. So instead, I've put together a few possible theories about events that happen in the vicinity of this timeline. It doesn't match perfectly, but in the vicinity. The first one is Charles Xavier's taken over by a brood queen. Uh, and then later, like after the whole battle, which I'm not going to get into, he's taken over by a brood queen. He's kind of evil. It's kind of like part of the reason he puts the new mutants together, but then he gets better, et cetera, et cetera. A big battle happens. To get healed, he has to go into Shi'ar space, and Moira McTaggart works with the Starjammers, works with the Shi'ar, to clone him a new body. And this new body is able to walk. To me, this is a crucial potential moment for Myra and Charles that Myra might redact because what did she do when she cloned him a new body, right? Okay, he can walk, but he's otherwise the same. Did Myra change things in his, in his like, you know, the version of his his mind and soul that was re-uploaded to his body? Is this one of the first examples of a husk and mind transplant being used in, in the resurrection protocols that we now see in House of X and Powers of Ten? I could see a lot of potential Myra, she, you know, she's, Professor X is at her mercy here, I think. And she clones him a new body and saves him. But, you know, when Professor X says, for the first time in over 15 years, I am a whole man, there could be major, major ramifications to that moment. So that's like one of my favorite possible selections. The other ones that I like that could be happening here to be redacted. One, it could be a reference to something from New Mutants 26 to 28, the reveal of Legion as Professor X's son. I think Legion, you know, he's such a powerful mutant. There's so much to him. He could potentially play a role. It could be uh, a little out of, out of the time sink here, but Professor X was imprisoned by Skrulls. In Uncanny X-Men number 277, um, there could be some body swapping type stuff with scrolls, although I find that fairly unlikely. The one that, that actually makes more sense to me to be redacted is the Muir Island saga, because this does happen before X-Men number one is released by Claremont and Lee. Um, and in this issue, Professor X's spine is shattered. You know, he loses the, the use of his legs again to the Shadow King. Again, the fact that this takes place on Muir Island with Myra McTaggart, McTaggart heavily involved, connects to all of the players. And we also see Legion, you know, seemingly uh, nearly killed. I think he's put into a coma in this issue. So there's a lot of trauma that Professor X experiences here. I could see a return to the Muir Island saga and the Shadow King's influence as a, a big moment in Moira and Professor X history that could be explained more thoroughly in future X-Men stories to come. So again, that redacted one, I don't have it pinned down to you know any one thing, but those are the options that I find most interesting. All right, let's see. We've got three more entries, and I think they aren't quite as as big <laughs> and and different as the ones I've discussed already or as complicated potentially. Entry 48, we have a really large jump 
in entry numbers, actually. And there's a note about Magneto and Professor X visits to Bar Sinister that we've seen in Powers of Ten, number four. The absolute trickiest part of this is, again, that timeline thing <laughs> where in Powers of X4, the visit to Bar Sinister is captioned as X0, the X-Men Year One, which would mean the 25 years of X-Men Comics continuity I just covered takes place during a single year. This is tricky, <laughs> you know? I think if we look at the lifelines, you can do some math. If you look at Myra's 10th lifeline, okay, let's say 1963 to 1991 is somehow like one year. Then you do another year from the X-Men number one until uh, the end of the entries here, which is basically the lead to new X-Men. So basically all the 90s is year one. So that's two years. And then we have years three, four, five would be kind of what we talked about in that initial Hickman question of everything from the events of Genosha, New X-Men, all the way on through to present day up till House of X. Listen, if you can map it out, if you can make it happen, hit me in the comments and tell me what you think because this stuff is, <laughs> is rife with contradiction and challenges. Nonetheless, I, I like my mapping here, so I'm going to keep a plug-in. The next one. To me, we have lost Magneto, entry 52. It makes the most sense to me if losing Magneto is in reference to X-Men number one when Chris Claremont and Jim Lee returned the reformed character to his super villain roots from the Silver Age. Magneto very specifically churns on Charles and Moira for their betrayal in these three issues, X-Men number one to number three, again launching in 1993. Um, you know, I think the roots of their House of X alliance would fit in pretty easily to this segment because Magneto, again, he makes a point. Charles Xavier is not the only interested party here, Dr. McTaggart, and if you are hiding something, especially something that I strongly suspect pertains to me, I really insist, must insist you reveal what it is, you know? So he's coming after both of them in a way that he doesn't typically. You know, we frequently think of the Magneto-Charles Xavier rift, not necessarily so focused on Myra. Uh, he, especially here, attacks Myra over turning him, or really, she's not the one who turns him into a baby. Yeah, there's a time where Magneto gets turned into a baby. <laughs> Happened in an issue of Defenders, actually. But then Myra keeps him as a baby uh, in the Mirror Island uh, uh, facility and, and is trying to, as she says here, a second chance to live your life over again. She's kind of trying to correct him, which is really fascinating given what we know about the Myra Professor X uh, Magneto Alliance. Magneto says, who gave you the right to play God with my soul? By the eternal, by tinkering with the foundation of my being, you took from me the dimensions of moral choice. Every decision I've made since my rebirth is now suspect, thanks to you. His rebirth here happens, I believe it's uh, the issue Magneto Triumphant, which is an uncanny X-Men. I'm going to guess 104. I think I just read it. Uh, it's one of the main values of doing the My Marvelous Year Reading Club read-along that we're doing, going back through Uncanny X-Men, which is completely fascinating with everything that we know now about House of X and Powers of Ten in mind. But this one's interesting to me. You know, this to me is the most sensible moment to call a schism because Magneto breaks loose here and is no longer on the side of Professor X and Myra, which takes us to the final entry that we get in the journal entry so far, Myra's brief explanation for her known fake death, first teased in the first set of lifelines from House of X number two. This is probably the most precise timeline entry we get, actually, um, as we know exactly when this fake death occurred. It was during the X-Men Dreams End saga. Uh, it occurs in relation to both X-Men continuity and the House of X timelines. We know exactly when Myra goes out and you know the biggest question for me still is not when it happened because we know okay this happens right before 
uh, New X-Men and the events of Genosha. The biggest question for me is why Mara felt the need to take herself out of the picture. I suspect some of the, the things that we talked about in the redacted entries are going to have something to do with why Myra exits the scene here. But again, we don't really know the full details of of this decision other than, you know, we know what happened. And we kind of already did. So entry 57 doesn't really give us a ton new. And all that builds to Professor X flaunting it like a man should <laughs> in the pages of new X-Men once he gets the use of his legs back. So there you have it. That's my effort to map all of the journal entries to X-Men continuity. Uh, again, I think I'm I'm very much in alignment with the idea of we don't have to pinpoint every every little thing down to the nanosecond because it's just going to it's going to make it an exercise in in time and date and not an exercise in fun storytelling. That said, as somebody who loves continuity in comics and superhero comics in particular, I like the idea of these things having happened and I like the challenge, sort of the puzzle it presents for X-Men storytellers moving forward to try to figure out, okay, how can they fit now? in the House of X and Powers of Ten narrative. I think there's some really interesting developments that can be had to say, all right, this event that we all know happened, for example, the Mutant Massacre, what relation does that play to things like House of X and Powers of Ten? How is, you know, these things, they seem to have still happened. When did they happen? What was the, what mindset changes knowing what we know now about the ultimate plan of the X-Men moving forward? So, Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Dave Busing, again, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. If you're liking the Kraken Krakoa series, I do plan to be continuing into the Dawn of X. You can check out the Road to Dawn of X video I did here to get ready for X-Men number one and all the new titles that will be launching. Uh, please like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Please subscribe to the podcast, Best Comics Ever. And as always, you can go on over to ComicBookHerald.com and check out the new content we are putting up regularly regarding guides to getting into comics, regarding analysis. Uh, we just did a big deep dive, John and myself, on House of X and Powers of Ten added as a series. The big question we're asking there is, does it work? How does it work? as uh, as a reimagining of a superhero franchise in 2019. We really go into kind of what makes the series tick. It's about an hour-long conversation on the pod on Best Comics Ever. So thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, enjoy the comics. <laughs>